welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. Today we're going to continue the series exploring the Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Scheme, the post-war monster infrastructure undertaking that ran for a quarter of a century. Last episode we looked at the Snowy region and a little bit of its history before reflecting on how the project got its start. This episode will begin looking at how the Authority gathered the data to design and plan the construction and how they gathered a workforce at a time when labour was scarce. Once again, I'll be relying heavily on and quoting from the stories that Siobhan McHugh gathered and recorded in her Butte book, The Snowy, A History. As always, the details about that book and the other references used can be found in the episode reference list at the australianhistoriespodcast.com.au website. Don't forget, the histories is spelt with an I-E-S. Before I begin, I would like to thank Scott and also Kirsty Lee, both of whom pitched in with a contribution last month. I'm very grateful. Thank you. And also to those who took the trouble to write some fabulous reviews also. The topics in my podcasts swing all over the place, so I'm glad these stories are of interest to you. Listener Judy told me that she had suggested her book group listen to the Cascades episodes after they'd read a book related to women convicts as another perspective to their discussion. (laughs) So I hope they enjoyed that experience, Judy, and thanks. It's great to know that the potty is being shared and used in that way too. This episode, I'm being sponsored by The Little Buffalo. The Little Buffalo is a dedicated marketing agency specialising in communicating your business. Having used them myself, I can say that Lee and the team are wonderful, hands-on and always happy to chat about any project or idea you have. So contact them via their website at www.thelittlebuffalo.com.au And of course I'll put a link to The Little Buffalo on the webpage for this episode. Thank you, Lee and the Little Buffalo team. Okay, on with the show. Last month, we left the Snowy Story just as the project had been set up as a federally funded Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Authority, coming into being on August 1st, 1949. Championed by the then Minister for Works and Housing, Nelson Lemon, with the authority headed by the well-respected William or Bill Hudson, the project was expected to begin immediately, all the sooner to bring electricity to a huge number of consumers and increased water to the agricultural lands to the west, and Hudson would waste no time. Give me a man who's a man among men Who'll stow his white collar and put down his pen We'll blow down a mountain and build you a dam Bigger and better than old Uncle Sam Go, go Sometimes it's raining and sometimes it's hail And sometimes it blows up a hell of a gale Sometimes there's fire and sometimes there's flood And sometimes you're up to your eyeballs in mud As I mentioned in the previous episode, the Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Scheme intended to dam and divert waters from a number of rivers near their source, in the Australian Alps. This would mean constructing miles of massive pipes, 
across and through the rugged mountains, building a number of electricity generating plants to utilise the water flow, and miles of lines and pylons to deliver the electricity to Victoria, New South Wales and the Australian Capital Territory. The National Museum of Australia noted, quote, The scale of the snowy was enormous. Over the course of the project, the workforce built seven power stations, 16 dams, 80 kilometres of aqueducts, 145 kilometres of tunnels and 16,000 kilometres of roads and railway tracks. Unquote. Just think about that, when we know it takes a year to get a single lane added to an existing freeway. It was a monumental project, requiring thorough surveying across a vast and mountainous area and detailed engineering calculations and construction drawings. A massive workforce would be required, and before much work could start at all, access would need to be carved into remote and rugged areas, and camps built to house all the workers, often far from any existing townships. During the 25 years of construction, Cooma hosted the authority's headquarters, but they built a number of townships with services and more than 100 workers' camps for use during the projects, housing between about 50 up to 3,000 at authority hubs. Many more short-term camps would have been used in the earliest days as they surveyed and sited for the construction. And they permanently relocated the existing townships of Jindabyne and Adaminibi, which would afterwards be inundated by the rising waters gathering behind the new dams. So let's have a look today at the early days and the developing plans as the project got underway in earnest. The actual construction, number and size of dams and power stations changed a little from the earliest designs as they gathered more data and refined their plans. The whole scheme was expected to operate across two distinct construction plans, one for the Snowy Tumut Works to the north and the other the Snowy Murray Works to the south both eventually diverting the harnessed waters westward for inland irrigation into the Murray and Murrumbidgee rivers after generating the power. Further race lines would be built to gather water from other local streams to feed into the system. Certainly the resulting downstream water environment would be completely changed and that would have a substantial impact on the local environment in the Alps and in the downstream places. The Snowy River originates on the slopes of Mount Kosciuszko and used to drain through the Snowy River National Park into Victoria and on to the sea through Orbost. Most other waterways beginning in the Alps pretty much flowed away from Victoria, joining the major waters of the Murray-Darling Basin on the New South Wales side. They drain much of the eastern side of Australia and then meet the ocean just over the South Australian border into Lake Alexandrina and through the Coorong, southeast of Adelaide. Under the scheme, the waters feeding the Snowy River would instead be largely diverted to the Swampy Plain River, feeding then into the Murray River. Sadly, this meant that the only major watercourse originating in the Alps and flowing through the southeast into Victoria's East Gippsland would be critically impacted by this diversion. That impact was considered, but only in the most limited way, and it would be a disaster for the Snowy River and its surrounds. We might come back to the consequences for the Snowy River in the series wrap. Now many of the individual construction elements that formed part of the entire project would be built simultaneously, and it was staged 
to get individual power stations running at the earliest and deliver the used water at the earliest so that the public would get some advantage for their support as early as possible. In the original plans, the two huge reservoirs at Adaminibi, now called Lake Eucumbine and Jindapine, would regulate the release of waters into those westward draining river systems. But as the project evolved, Lake Eucumbine was further increased in size and it became the link between the two north and south sections of the scheme. It increased the size of the two main water storages and that meant that the established township of Adaminibi would now be engulfed. Adaminibi was gazetted as a township in the 1880s, though pastoralists had moved into the area to claim lands there in the 1830s. Gold prospecting brought increased population into the area in the 1850s and 60s, and the township, under a previous name, developed as a centre there for the region. Jindabyne had a similar development trajectory. A bridge built over the snowy there in 1893 really opened up their opportunities for further development. These days, new Jindabyne is all about the nearby ski fields and the summer recreational opportunities. So both the old townships of Adaminibi and Jindabyne would need wholesale relocation to higher ground, and the historic remnants would be submerged under the new dam waters. Of course, there would be many individual landholders who would lose land to the rising waters and the construction zones too. And Nelson Lemon, who had championed the project right from the start, knew that negotiating arrangements and compensation around those losses would be a very important and delicate matter. So very early on in the promotion of the scheme, he took a direct role in addressing this issue. Lemon, a farmer himself, knew that the key to winning them over would be to sell the importance of the project for the country and to emphasise the compensation and assistance they would be given to relocate to make way for the snowy. And his first meeting at Adaminibi did go really well. The delegates were assured they would get fair and thoughtful negotiations for giving up their land and their high plain grazing leases. Of course, the early vision of what was needed was later further complicated because a change in the plans, as I mentioned earlier, would mean the actual township would also go under and they would have to work through those negotiations in the same way. Hudson felt it would be best to start the land acquisitions immediately, even though it would be several years before the authority would need access. So discussions began in 1949, as the surveyors were still confirming the actual requirements. The initial valuations were done by the Lands Department and negotiated individually from there. The owners, having sold the land to the authority, could then lease it back at a minimal rate for the intervening years if they wished. That way the people had plenty of time to find what they needed next, and they wouldn't be competing with each other for new properties. For some, these negotiations continued over many years. As will always be the case in these situations, there were some who were happy to take the money and move on, but there were also a good number who felt aggrieved at the imposition and felt compensation did not match their losses and out-of-pocket relocation costs. McHugh suggests that some owners, not really understanding their position of strength, took the minimal offers generated by the Lands Department, but others, with more negotiating nows, ended up getting much higher compensation or better arrangements. So it has to be said that process might have been done more fairly to reduce the later discontent that many felt. I mean, those who negotiated early later felt ripped off when they discovered that their neighbours had waited and managed to get twice the payment. 
which ranged from around £13 to £52 per acre. Some people mourned their old towns and properties, but others jumped on the modern snowy bandwagon, joining the workforce and gaining a good income from the project operating in their old backyard. McHugh recorded a good number of varying recollections, reflecting many different emotions. She also noted that actually most landowners moved out of the area, taking their compensation with them, now that there was much less local land available. And some found this devastating, having been settled there for generations. Many of the smaller towns across the snowy sites got a little, or indeed a large, boost while construction was underway nearby. But when the work dried up and the farming was no longer viable around the townships, some never recovered afterwards. Talbingo and Surrounds saw some temporary activity while works were undertaken nearby, but pretty much became a ghost town when the works were completed. Old Talbingo Homestead had been the birthplace of writer Miles Franklin, of my brilliant career fame, her family owning it into the 1940s. I believe it was threatened in the recent 2020 January and February bushfires, but I couldn't find any reports on its fate, so I hope it's still standing. By 1958, the authority had spent £597,533 purchasing 17,000 hectares, that's 42,000 acres, much of which would eventually be underwater at the end of the project. Later, when the plans altered, homeowners in Adaminibi also had to negotiate compensation and relocation, as I mentioned. The authority offered to move their homes to, quote, a comparable location, unquote, actually lifting and physically transporting the buildings where practicable, or rebuilding a similar structure if not. Though if a new home was needed to be built, the resident had to fund the difference in market value, and this tended to mean they had to go into debt to do so, albeit with an interest-free loan. And it was a bit trickier for those who had businesses with associated buildings. Though Hudson had claimed he could guarantee no one would lose from the arrival of the Snowy Scheme, many in town felt they had lost out, that it had cost them business, and therefore money directly, and resulted in a loss of some control over their old and new lives. In one instance, the authority remained in dispute with one litigant, the case going through the courts for 30 years. That's longer than the actual project. In the end, about half the population of Adaminibi opted to leave the area, so the new town's population of locals was sizably reduced. Prime Minister Ben Chifley lost office in December of 1949, only two months after he had successfully got the Snowy Scheme up and running. And Lemon, also out of office, had to hand his precious project over to the new Menzies government, the very men who had originally opposed any such federal investment. Lemon was devastated at having to leave his project to others, and indeed such was his grief that he became ill and he was bedridden for a month afterwards. Though he withdrew from public life with only one more stint in politics a couple of years later, he always remained enormously proud of the Snowy Scheme and his part in it, and he was also eternally grateful for Chifley's vision and support in getting what was still, today, the most impressive engineering project in Australia underway. Lemon kept in touch with Hudson, though, always helping and giving advice when he could, and he received copies of the annual reports for at least 17 of the 25-year project. A rewarding reminder, no doubt, that their careful planning, despite one potential threat in the years to come, ensured the project could continue largely as envisaged in the beginning. 
The Liberal Country Party, and Menzies himself, was originally hostile to Chifley's plan, but they were quite happy to take the accolades as the project moved impressively forward and the country began reaping the rewards. Though Menzies himself boycotted the official opening, many ministers later delighted in cutting the ribbons as each milestone section was completed. Party politics aside, Menzies would actually have been very keen to have his home state of Victoria gain substantial electricity from the scheme, and once he no longer had to play at opposing it, once he had thrashed Chifley, he became a keen, if quiet, supporter. Certainly he congratulated Lemon on a job well done, even at the time. Away from the gates of the cameras, of course. It's the nature of the parliamentary adversarial tussle, isn't it? That official opening of the project took place at Adaminibi on the Yukonbeen River on the 17th of October, 1949. The Governor-General McKell gave a ceremonial speech and then he pressed a plunger which exploded dynamite in the river gorge below, symbolising the beginning of the works. Well, that beats cutting a ribbon, doesn't it? McHugh noted that the plaque laid to commemorate that opening now lies 90 metres underwater. <laughs> after the review and the expansion of the Yukonbeen Reservoir. Oh well, I expect there are photos. <laughs> Hudson was 53 at the time he took on leadership of the Snowy Authority, so it was important that he put good men in his team, with a mix of some younger than himself, to see the project through its long gestation. He built a very competent team around him, including Associate Commissioners Tom Lang from the Queensland Water and Irrigation Body and Tony Merrigan from the State Electricity Commission of Victoria. Oh, here comes the noisy rain. <laughs> ah, we'll just press on. Hudson was a hard worker and he expected the same ethic from all he employed, but he was also very human and approachable and he had a genuine desire to see all the many workers on the scheme feel part of one big, proud family, and his manner and approach endeared him to most. He would stop and talk to the workers when the opportunity arose, and genuinely praise and encourage them for work well done. Keeping good morale was one of his highest priorities. His interest in the workers at the coalface was a great surprise to many of the migrant workers who were unfamiliar with such an egalitarian boss. They couldn't believe that some Australians would refer to him as Bill. <laughs> in his time, his desire to create the Snowy family, so to speak, had been so successful that those working on the Snowy did see themselves as people apart, privileged to be part of this great venture. Members of the public who came in were known as civilians. <laughs> so the physical work was to begin, but first they had to recruit a workforce. Australia had started a migration program post-war in 1945, but still a couple of years later in 1949, as McHugh put it, Australia was overwhelmingly white and English-speaking. The sensibility was largely English, though that would soon be challenged by the influence of American TV in Australian homes in the near future. The cuisine was English, such as it was then. The humour, the education, the sophistication, or lack of it. The influx of Europeans after the war really added many new flavours to the vanilla Oz, and the incoming snowy workers certainly had a large impact on the Australian psyche. With a population of 8 million at that time, two-thirds of British extraction, and the inevitable post-war shortage of plant and labour, the authority needed to look outside of Australia for suitable candidates, expertise and a labour force. 
Most immediately they needed qualified and experienced surveyors, hydrographers, engineers, geologists and draftsmen to confirm that the project proposals would work after being mapped to the real terrain and to draw up the construction plans for tender. Tradesmen would also be needed to build the support facilities and accommodation. Now about 30% of the people needed were recruited within Australia, but in an interesting take for our contemporary years, they didn't want the project to suck the labour pool out of the rest of booming post-war Australia, so they were keen to top up with willing workers from overseas. Engineer Roy Robinson was sent to Germany in 1950 to find experienced engineers, surveyors and 600 tradesmen. With Australia also keen to boost its population, after the scare of invasion in World War II, there was an assisted migrant program in place, drawing mostly from Britain and also from other areas in Europe. But they were also actively recruiting workers from the displaced persons camps across Europe via the UN Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, who were looking to repatriate or relocate 8.5 million people after the war. That's more people than we had in our whole country at the time. Robinson recruited the professionals from a pool of vetted and qualified persons, but generally the displaced persons got their visa only if they were healthy and agreed to work for two years in an Australian government nominated position. This would usually be work as a labourer. So not all migrants coming to the Snowy would have freely chosen the project as their work site. All sorts of people arrived, including those with professional qualifications in their home country. McHugh recounts one story about a man working as an ambulance driver. He became so well known for his interest in the medical cases that he was often allowed to assist the doctors. At some point he was with them when a tracheotomy was required, and as the doctor was about to make the incision, the ambulance officer yelled, Stop! That's not right! It should be started from that point! The doctor was affronted, and pointing to his medical reference book, stated that he was following the instructions of the world's foremost authority on the procedure. The ambulance man was said to have responded, Yes, well, that was correct when I wrote it, but things have changed since then. <laughs> It sounds a little unlikely, doesn't it? But there were certainly many European labourers there who were highly trained and experienced in varied professions, far removed from the jackhammers and the concrete pouring. Some would eventually be able to resume their previous careers, taking 10 or more years to retrain in some cases, but many others were never able to convert their previous qualifications to work professionally in Australia. Between 1947 and 1952, 17,000 displaced persons made their way to Australia, along with another 2 million assisted migrants. That's over a quarter of our population in five years. Oh, and how grateful are we that they brought with them their wonderful food. Except the sauerkraut. We can all do without that. Oh, except for its wonderful anti-scurvy properties. Dope. Okay, even the sauerkraut enriched our bland palates. <laughs> the professionals recruited directly into the snowy scheme by Robinson had to jump through some extra hoops. For these Germans, as well as being healthy and of good character, the Australian unions also set a few technical tasks for them. They figured it was no good if they couldn't identify the tools. One test was that they should know how to read a dumpy level. Now, I've been involved in some self-build in my time, but I don't think I know what a dumpy level is. <laughs> Apparently, it didn't stump any of the applicants, though. 
The first 50 successful recruits were flown out to Australia as soon as possible, arriving in April of 1951. Another 600 were sent more conventionally by sea over the following year. The trip usually took about five weeks, and in the early years they often travelled in converted troop carriers, so these were no luxury trips. They were often complaints about the food, one traveller reporting that they had different shaped spaghetti for each of the three meals a day, and not the delicious Italian kind by the sounds of it. Australia would eventually cotton on to the tasty European cuisines, but in the early days, such exotic foods, like garlic, were a shock, as was the Aussie food for the new arrivals. In migrant holding camps in New South Wales at Bathurst, Bonagilla and Greta, McHugh was told that some found the greasy mutton inedible, but then others delighted in the high fat content after the deprivations of the war years. Some of the direct recruits were sent straight to Cooma, where the authority headquarters was set up, but they would soon move to local barracks closer to the sites of work. Almost all were excited to be beginning their new life in Australia and were grateful for the opportunities they might be able to carve out in this new land after so many years of tentative arrangements and turmoil. Some migrants, like the tradesmen, paid their own passage or had the cost taken from their pay in instalments. Others were subsidised by the government. Their new work environment in Australia would be a shock to many, though. Australia was imagined as hot and sunny, as much of the country is, but for those heading to the snowy mountains, the very name should have given them a clue. Some had, unwisely, thrown out their warm European winter clothing on the voyage, keen to make a fresh start in sunny Australia. But once they arrived in the Alps, they would have experienced much regret. In Australia at that time, good quality, warm, snow-grade clothing was hard to come by. There was just not much cook for it in the country, generally. The conditions in the Alps, particularly the winters, would have been a new experience for many of the Australian-born workers too, actually. McHugh recorded that in 1953, at a work camp at Spencer's Creek, the 25-man team there experienced a blizzard that lasted three weeks. Fortunately, they were well supplied, so they just hunkered down to wait it out, under two metres of snow. One man recalled, quote, you had to take the snow in through the window till you could get out and then throw it back out. We dug corridors from the mess to the barracks and just stayed put till it was over. Unquote. Pretty much first on the ground were the surveyors, who generally worked in pretty small groups, one recalling, quote, There were no Australians among us, except Herb the horseman, who came once a week. The rest were mainly East Europeans. And we spoke a mixture of Serbian, Ukrainian, Russian and Polish. I think before I learned English, I had to learn Serbian. Unquote. Isn't that brilliant? The number of people who came to this country fluent in multiple languages and just jumped in learning English as well. It's wonderful and so impressive. There were classes offered in English for the migrant workers, but of course those doing the early work and the remote work didn't have much formal opportunity, so the exposure you had would account for most. Later, others said they worked such long days they couldn't face a class after work. Most got by with translations from workmates and learning on the job. So many of the migrants jumped at the opportunity offered by the Snowy. But for some, working there was a necessity and they had to commit to two years at least. One young Australian worker told McHugh, quote, I felt quite sorry for the migrants. I was there by choice. It was an experience as well as the fact that I was earning a lot of money. 
It was different to anything I'd ever done. So for me it was very good, but I could turn around and walk out any time I wanted and go back to Sydney. For these people it was very different. Many of them were married, they couldn't get any other work, and sending money back to their family. The mail would come in twice a week, and you could see that a lot of them were very unhappy. Unquote. So that must have been pretty awful for some. But the authority was very keen to reduce the potential for unhappiness and for conflict, and they were always watchful for trouble brewing. A bloke told McHugh he would never put three Germans in a small workforce because, quote, they all wanted to be boss, unquote. Well, that's a little racist stereotyping going on there, typical of post-war attitudes. I'm not sure how he thought all the Germans got on and worked together back in Germany. <laughs> but there was, of course, plenty of that stereotyping going on. And there usually is some fire where there's smoke, so keeping an eye on the potential aggravation was probably a good idea. That core ethos pushed throughout the scheme was that all workers were in it together, all snowy people. They were expected to leave old animosities at the door. But like any human environment, the group sorted out their own pecking orders amongst the men. And one bloke commented, the hardest to get on with were the old Australians who resented the, quote, bloody wogs coming in and living off the smell of an oily rag, unquote. Never mind that the snowy could not have been built without them. Australia had neither the workforce nor the number of men willing to work the conditions offered at the time. Robinson reviewed the suitably qualified people through the Employment of Scientific and Technical Enemy Aliens Scheme. Through such a scheme, the men who had been on the wrong side of the fight were vetted and cleared as suitable persons to be given opportunities in the post-war environment. Over the following year or so, 129 Germans cleared through that program were allowed a new start in Australia on the snowy. As it turned out, a few, quote, members of the Nazi party or other Nazi groups, unquote, had been able to slip through. They'd checked the backgrounds as thoroughly as was possible, though identifying people in the post-war environment was not always easy. But Robinson later said that only a few of the men he recruited turned out to have unacceptable backgrounds that he would have turned down had he known about it. So that's not too bad a result, really. So many from overseas had signed up specifically looking to leave old Europe behind and start a new life in a far-flung country. Some of the Australians who signed up may have done so for related reasons too, like ex-servicemen who found that they could not settle back into the communities they'd left behind before the war. Some would have been attracted to the camaraderie of the camp life, a little like the institutionalisation of army life maybe. And then there were men who desired to spend their time leading a relatively self-directed life in the bush. Not everyone aspired to spend their lives in the post-war suburban developments spreading all over the country. And finding a niche similar to the one they had held during the war was also an attractive lure for some of the women who worked on the snowy. They had enjoyed the sense of personal independence and pride in the community-focused employment of wartime work and they didn't care to take up the domesticity offered afterwards to the women of the 1950s. One saying, We've got warm clothes, let's go! <laughs> so many found jobs in Cooma working at the authority headquarters. Amongst the varied nationalities, 
Indeed, even some home-grown Aussies, there were some who'd worked under false names for reasons that might have aided their immigration process, such as using someone else's x-rays or papers to pass some hurdle, or to hide an unpleasant wartime history, or even to mask some local issue with family or the law. Itinerant and remote work has always been a refuge for those wanting to keep their heads down, and there was a good percentage of casuals employed over the years. But one of the Cooma police detectives told McHugh he greeted every train from Sydney to try and weed out the incoming crims and cons, and he was particularly keen to turn around those men who were trying to disappear and avoid paying their child support and maintenance payments back in town. Robinson estimated that across the workforce there was up to 70 different nationalities represented, some of whom had very recently been Australia's enemies at war. But the authority insisted the workers put aside any past hostilities for the opportunity to be involved in a brilliant nation-building project in a laid-back and welcoming country. And almost to a man, they were willing, even keen to do so, and there really was very little trouble arising from nationalism, except apparently between the Serbs and Croats, <laughs> according to McHugh. Guys, you've got to leave that stuff at the door. But most just wanted to look ahead to better times and to a new way of living together, and they were exceedingly proud of their contribution to a booming new Australia. One reported there was, quote, the odd brawl, like any Sydney pub, but people generally got on well, unquote. Even that trouble was mostly connected with alcohol, when people's inhibitions dropped. Mostly everyone tried to live as Hudson had entreated, as one big shiny snowy family. However, there was some stratification between the professional and non-professionals, the wages and the staff employees, apparently, a class strata of sorts, and even the workers' wives felt this operating in the authority towns, something that wasn't normally experienced in a country town, a certain snobbishness that created a self-defined elite and excluded some women, wives of the wages' men. Fortunately, they found ways around it. And of course, there was some suspicion and reserve towards the New Australians, as the migrants were referred to, in polite company, or if not, as wogs. But the migrant workers on the scheme were celebrated for their contributions over the years, while there was some adjustment in the early days for the Anglo-Australians to embrace these non-British European migrants and their different ways, there was not generally the vocal anxiety we see more recently about migrants taking our jobs. In fact, we were desperate for them to come in and take up the jobs on the Snowy. So maybe migrants coming to the Snowy may have felt more accepted than those arriving in the cities post-war, perhaps. I think in days past, Australian workers may have had a reputation for wanting an easy life, taking advantage of the boss when possible, skiving off and working short hours, and demanding public holidays on a regular basis. Now, if that were ever true, certainly it's not the case now, and Australians are recognised as hard workers. But at the start of the Snowy Project, when there was a labour shortage in Australia, it was a workers' market. It was clear to the authority a very hard-working and strict regime would be required to keep the project under control. McHugh wrote, quote, The combination of a forceful commissioner determined that his government project would not be the usual bludge, and a workforce with a desire to achieve something distinguished the snowy from the start. Where the individual migrant worker in Australia soon had to adapt to the prevailing local attitude, on the snowy it was the reverse. 
the Australians found themselves in the minority and had no choice but to adopt the more strict foreign work practices. Skilled or unskilled, anyone who was afraid of hard work simply did not last on the snowy." Unquote. To be fair, it wasn't really about any fear of hard work for the Australians. It was often more about the isolation from family and friends that they would need to endure. Australian men who had a 40-hour week and a comfy life with the family and the burbs had less reason to give that up for the extra money. It was a quality-of-life decision, something that those coming from disrupted societies in Europe did not have the luxury to choose. Of course, it was a massively exciting project for those wanting to use and develop their technical and professional skills too. And a boy's own adventure for those out there in the wilds, actually moulding nature to their requirements. And for those with an open heart and mind, it provided the opportunity to mix with others from all over the world in all walks of life, like travelling the world without the travel, as someone said. For many, they signed a hard but rewarding contract, and very lucrative too, with good pay for the long days and shift work. With the isolated camp environments, they had every opportunity to save most of the income. As you might imagine, for a dam-building man, Hudson was a huge fan of America's Hoover Dam, completed in 1935. At this time, the Americans were right up there with dam-building knowledge, and Hudson was able to get a good deal of advice and assistance from the United States Bureau of Reclamation, the body in America responsible for these kinds of water projects. And this was particularly valuable at the beginning of the Snowy Scheme, when Australia was short of that kind of experience. It was clear this project was substantially more complex than anything ever done before, and in 1962, the American Society of Civil Engineers would declare the Snowy Scheme one of the, quote, seven wonders of the engineering world, unquote. It was an attractive project for engineers to be involved with. Between 1951 and 61, the US Bureau assisted with the design of several early projects, including the Yukonbeen Reservoir, the Tumut Pond Dams, and the Tumut One Pressure Tunnel. They also advised on organisation and equipment selection, and oversaw the contracts that would be put to tender. Their experience and help was crucial in ensuring the project plans were clear and workable in those early days. The US Bureau also trained 103 Australian engineering graduates for the authority during those years, the authority covering their costs. The Bureau embedded them in the kind of major projects in the States not seen in Australia until the snowy was started. It was an arrangement that would give the Australian engineers involved a crash course in large-scale complex projects, and they benefited from the many good mentors involved. Within 10 years of starting the Snowy Works, the Australians had enough expertise and confidence to do the work without the Bureau input, and they had learned how to manage the workforce and get similar outcomes to the American contractors. Not too much later, as the Snowy proceeded, the world would look to the engineers from the Snowy for help, and we'll talk about that a little later on. When work commenced, the first massive task was to investigate and survey on the ground to inform the developing designs, and this would require investigation across the vast Alps area. A lot of the area was steep and rugged, and most of it without any existing roads. Some were thickly covered with scrub and trees, and finding a line of sight was difficult. It was often cold, and in winter completely snow-covered, so work throughout the 49.50 summer season was a priority. 
Olsen, the Norwegian who had brought the idea to Lemon in the first place, was employed as the chief investigating officer, and until the additional recruits from Europe had arrived, he had only 30 qualified engineers to put to the task. So it was all hands on deck. As there always are in these grand stories, the Snowy hosted a number of eccentrics and legends. One well-known character was a man known as the Major. Hugh Clues had joined the Royal Australian Engineers and in 1915 had worked with the Australian Survey Corps in France during World War I. During the Second War, he was working out of Ingham in Queensland in the largely unsurveyed north, which was at risk with the Japanese forces advancing just over the Straits. He was a highly respected professional and, quote, his strength of character, his humanity and his charm endeared him to all the members of his unit, unquote. Though he was by 1949 in retirement, with such an exciting project, it didn't take too much to lure him back into the workforce for the snowy. The massive task and the outdoors life would have been very attractive to him. So after two wars at the age of 60, he took the lead role in the early field surveys across the snowy mountains. He was happy to be out in the wilderness, but apparently he always ensured he had his necessary comforts, like a good supply of rum. And who would begrudge him that, eh? Just about everyone who worked with him had some anecdote to tell about his slightly eccentric behaviour. Indeed, there's a biography available on the web about his time with the Snowy, and that link can be found in the reference list at the AustralianHistoriesPodcast.com.au. One story recounted how, on a very precarious river crossing, and I have posted a picture of that rather unlikely non-Oc health and safety method of transport on the webpage, the Major was actually thrown into the icy waters and under the dinghy. As they dragged the dinghy to shore, he was found underneath with the dinghy rope tangled around his neck. Fortunately, he was okay and recovered, but he was furious at the loss of his hat, an item of attire he was never without, apparently. Calling for rum, he retreated to his tent and stayed there for more than a week until a replacement hat had been acquired for him. While the Major had extensive experience in surveying in varied terrains across the country, he was from the old guard, and that was lucky, actually, because they were starting out with pretty old equipment, too. Soon, the European surveyors were coming in with a suite of new modern tools and equipment, like the appropriately mod-sounding phototheodolite and highly exciting electronic distance measuring contraptions. <laughs> tools that would make, quote, a comfortable day's work out of what would have taken six to eight weeks before, unquote. But, amazingly, the work done by the Major and his crews, when checked in the years following, were found to be pretty close to accurate. It was demanding work for these men, hiking into uncharted bush, carrying all the supplies and equipment needed for many days in the field, and the Major was out there with his men in all weather. He worked nearly ten more years on the Snowy, after his first retirement, finally bowing out in 1958. He requested permission from the authority to stay in the area of his main camp at Indi in his second retirement, and he was granted a 99-year lease. Well, that was a good start, but he wasn't entirely happy. McHugh tells the tale of the Major trekking into the head office at Cooma and confronting the big boss Hudson with his displeasure about the lease, complaining it was only for 99 years. <laughs> He'd worked hard. You can see how he might want the recognition. And Hudson agreed. He told him to come back when it ran out and he'd be granted an extension. <laughs> the Major built himself a mud brick house there. 
He grew geraniums and wrote, staying in the mountains until an injury finally forced him into town at Kankaban, where he died in 1980, having seen the completion of the massive hydro scheme. By the way, the Major's hut still stands today, along with a memorial to him and his work. Gradually, as the data came in, the best options for earliest results began to dictate the construction order. They would start investigations around the Snowy River at Gathiga, with construction of three dams, three tunnels and three power stations in that area. Getting some power generated as early as possible was a priority. Eukambeen would be the next focus. So, we might finish here for today. There is more to say about the experiences of the town folk and the migrants, and we've only just begun looking at the experiences of the workers on the ground. Next week, we'll continue to explore how they developed the designs and planned the construction process, many different contractors for the individual project sections, and there was some anxiety about the Snowy's future, despite its good start. So join me next episode for more on the Snowy Hydro Scheme. My podcast recommendation for this month is one called World War I Digger History Podcast. Phil Mannell hosts the pod and reproduces diaries, memoirs and letters of real participants from the war. It's a very interesting and often moving way to present the information. You have probably lived through major events in history. What if you were part of the most pivotal event of the last 200 years? This podcast aims to bring to you the real war experience by real soldiers in their own words. World War One Digger History Podcast. I'll put a link to this World War One Digger History Podcast on my webpage at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au to see the full reference list of this episode and a few interesting images. Thanks for listening. Have a safe and happy few weeks, and I'll continue the snowy story soon. Cheers. Cheers.